people had sort of a, a positive vibe around this space isn't really going anywhere. Nobody that's there thinks it is. And this is just part of the process of a growing industry is there's going to be painful times, but the important part is just to continue building. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. So guys, I was on vacation last week and I took time away from crypto altogether. We were about to do a wellness check on you. We never, uh, I've never had a period of time where you've gone so long without answering my, my messages and my emails. <laughs> well, it, it was a good thing. I, I think it was good from a mental health perspective, uh, reading something other than crypto. So I, I dove into some historical fiction for a good distraction, but uh, you guys were, were pushing it hard all week, right? A couple of you guys were down at yeah. consensus. Yeah. And I guess just, just, to take a step back. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we got to jump in with both both feet there. It's been we're excited. It's been a while since all um, all four of us were, were together here. Jack and I were holding down the fort last week while, while you guys were away. Um, I think I think we did a pretty good job. We spent the week last week um, at consensus and we're going to spend you know some time talking about kind of what the vibe was and what some of the bigger announcements out of consensus was. But um, before we jump in, um, Parth, I know that you tried something last week um, that you found actually pretty interesting and exciting. So do you want to share a bit about that? Sure. So so this is one of those things which I'm genuinely really excited about, right? So typically when I share new protocols, I, I talk about them, I experiment with them, and then that's pretty much it. But uh, what I did last week was I used uh, a communication layer on Web3 called Push Protocol. And what Push Protocol does is that it enables messaging and notifications on decentralized applications or wallets, right? So what that really means is if there is any wallet or any dApp or any smart contract, they can send communication to a person's wallet, right? So now I can, I can look up Ryan's ENS, or if Jason provides his Ethereum address, I can chat uh, with you guys, right? And I can also send you notifications uh, on Web3. Uh, but I think one of the biggest unlocks of push protocol is that if I am an application like, like Uniswap, or if I'm a big decentralized application and I make a significant update, I can send a notification to all Uniswap users or all the wallets that are connected. So I, I think it's a, it's a pretty big win because I, when you think about it, you don't have any sort of uh, notification or alerting system in Web3. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. what I tried last week. Actually, what I really tried last week was use push protocol to uh, to video call a potential uh, teammate for an online hackathon. So this was kind of my first like Web3 uh, video chat using push protocol. So Parth, if, if you're using push protocol, are you signing a transaction to verify that you are who you say you are when you make that outreach? 
Absolutely. So you sign a transaction and it's just a digital signature. So you're not making uh, an on-chain transaction. It's fully gasless. Uh, and uh, typically the cost of the transaction is is done by the decentralized application or the person who's sending a message. Um, and so that actually is a really good way to maybe give you a quick backstory of push protocol, right? Because you want to see how the how the product uh, evolved. So they initially started off as a notification system. Uh, and so that's kind of table stakes in the Web2 world, right? So, I mean, you wake up to like a million notifications on your phone and then you click on each of these and then uh, that's how you start. Uh, that's how I start my day, which is honestly a really bad idea. But um, in Web3, you don't have the concept of notifications. So you had to go to a decentralized application to, to catch up with what you missed. And so imagine like, not knowing when you get an email, but actually going to Gmail or whatever email client you use to catch up with all the emails you have, mm -hmm. right? Which is pretty horrible. And so push protocol were the first notification system in Web3. I think there are a lot of use cases for this, right? Because like another, you know, one that immediately comes to mind is if you're a node operator, right? Particularly on Ethereum, you kind of have to be pretty attentive to Reddit and to Discord to see when there's an issue and when there's an upgrade coming out and be able to react to that in almost real time, right? And without kind of actively monitoring those channels, which really are the only kind of official channels that these services have, then I think it's there's a fairly high probability that you're going to miss something really important. And so I think like there's a huge opportunity there as well to to use this service for that yeah. just to kind of keep the kind of again all of the stakeholders within the ecosystem you know up to date as to what's happening on a real-time basis absolutely so, so not not a DeFi application but really coincidental timing i don't assume you guys saw this but um i actually saw the house of representatives passed a bill that allows for digital communication for capital markets information which is referred to as e-delivery and people sometimes wonder, why do they still get paper documents from a financial services provider? It's in part because uh, the regulations over time have said that they need to receive delivery. And for the longest time, there's been discussion about whether or not access equals delivery, meaning mm -hmm. it's published, you can find it, does that equal delivery? Right. Here, you can actually deliver electronic documents. And as you're talking about push protocol, my mind went into like, wow, how could you actually use that in a TradFi space too? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think like access though, in this case, like means something different. Right. And what I always like, what I worry about is like, just like the constant information fire hose that you're having to drink from in the crypto ecosystem. And like, you could literally put your phone down for five minutes and, and uh, there's a world of difference when you come back. Right. So, and so, so that's why I think there is a need to kind of be able to distill that down to like the most critical updates. Yeah. And the good part is that this is all opt-in. Right, so I just subscribe to all Uniswap updates. I subscribe to to CoinDesk on my on Push protocol. And one exciting thing about DeFi is that you just need a wallet. Like you don't have to share your email address, you don't have to share your phone number, but it also makes it really hard for these DeFi protocols to communicate with their users. Right, right? and so just having that communication layer on top of wallets is such a major unlock, whether it's wallet to wallet communication or whether it's smart contract to wallet communication makes a ton of sense yeah and, and totally I, I know it doesn't apply in the TradFi space but just to clarify that that bill passed the house financial services committee not the full house so yeah i want to jump the gun on that but uh so, it could be part just one more question before we move on any sense of what the back-end infrastructure looks like on something like this I'm, I'm assuming it's fairly centralized but maybe not 
It's actually not. So it's just, it's not even a blockchain. It's an open network. And all your all your communication is, is encrypted and it's all stored on IPFS. Um, That's what I was asking. Because I was like, oh, this kind of feels like an IPFS use case. <laughs> yeah, I feel like at this point of time, if you have any sort of huge communication needs or any data storage needs, most people uh, just go with IPFS. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for me, I think one last thing which I want to quickly talk about is if I you heard me talk about decentralized social media. And so it's just such a bad UX because you don't get notifications on Farcaster or Lens. Uh, and, and so now I have to regularly check my social media to see what, what I missed. But now I just get notifications. If Ryan liked my tweet or my Warcast or whatever equivalent you have on Twitter uh, on in Web3, then I can just get that no notification. Or if it's something more serious than... If, if I have an Aave loan position and if I'm about to get liquidated, I get a notification right away, which is such a big yeah. thing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a, seems like the, the applications are kind of seemingly endless for this. Right. So, and the need is certainly there. So that's great. Um, all right, so let, let's move on. Um, so consensus, um, you know, Jack, I can I can maybe share a couple of my thoughts around just the, the environment there, and you know, I'd be curious to get your thoughts as well. But I attended last year, attended this year. I would say overall there was kind of a notable shift, both in tone as well as kind of just the physical um, turnout there. Um, I think last year they had anywhere between fifteen and twenty thousand people, and maybe it was roughly half that this year. So there was definitely um, you know far fewer people. People there, um, but I would say overall, like still a relatively strong tone. Definitely different than last year. You had a lot less fringe projects that were just launching, right? It seemed like it was a very humbled crowd, and it was you know somewhat back to the basics, right? I think there was a big focus on kind of alt L ones, L twos, but I think what really dominated the conversation was you know legal, regulatory, compliance, and policy. Basically, the whole last day of the conference was dedicated to that. It's really largely reflective of kind of what's happening in the ecosystem outside of you know the four walls of consensus, um, and I think you know people are still feeling relatively optimistic about the future of the space. But I also think that there is a lot of uncertainty, um, particularly on the policy side, um, which is, has clouds over the ecosystem. Um, one thing that I will note is you know I sat in on a couple of the regulation-related panels. One thing that seemed like a fairly consistent theme across those is you know everyone is working to come up with a regulatory framework. And we've kind of talked about that in the past couple of months as to, you know, progress in certain jurisdictions around that. Um, but I think people are still looking to the United States to set precedent here. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think there there's this ongoing kind of need, um, you know, um, that is being basically left unfilled, right? Um, and that is regulatory clarity in the US. I don't know, Jack, do you have anything to, to add? Yeah, no, I, I pretty much agree with everything that, that you observed. Certainly, the number of people was lower than last year. I think all four of us were there last year, and Ryan, me and you were there this year. Less people, but also we're in a different market regime. Uh, I think you could tell, like, sentiment was down but not out. And I think, like, sort of, uh, for the most part, People had sort of a, a positive vibe around this space isn't really going anywhere. Nobody that's there thinks it is. And this is just part of the process of a growing industry is there's going to be painful times, but the important part is just to continue building. Yeah. Uh, and, and there was certainly a lot of that, even 
in in the Bitcoin space, there's a number of discussions around like ordinals, and that that didn't exist last year. Um, right. On on Ethereum, there were discussions around the the upcoming Cancun uh, upgrade and and what's next for Ethereum after the merge. Uh, and then there was, I think Ryan, you mentioned it before we got on here. There was a whole host of sort of new companies and startups as well. Yeah, um, that was probably the other most notable. Uh, change from last year is, you know, there were certainly some of the big incumbents there, but the majority of the companies on the floor were actually companies that I had never heard of before. Right? Really? So I think, yeah, like a pretty yeah. sizable shakeup in that sense. Um, and I, I think you can kind of draw your own conclusions as to what that means. You know, obviously the playing field has changed significantly since last year. Um, and, and just to give you a sense, you know, Bitcoin basically had a 50% drawdown like in the months following consensus last year. So we were still kind of in a pretty good place at this time, you know, when this conference happened last year um, compared to now. So I think yet yeah, overall, you know, fairly, fairly, you know, strong turnout, strong event. You know, it's certainly one of the biggest events um, in the industry you know, over the course of the other year, the other being, um, you know, probably Bitcoin Miami, which is going to be in a couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting to see um, kind of what the turnout is for that. But yeah, you know, I felt like it was time well spent and a pretty, pretty good event. But speaking of, um, you know, policy and regulation, um, we also saw some news um, from Binance US. Jason, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. And I think it's one of those situations where it's just an ongoing story, and for some people, it's been a it's been a long journey. Uh, so Binance US uh, announced that they were terminating the deal to acquire the Voyager assets. So this was a one billion dollar offer, which was withdrawn, and in their announcement, the Binance team cited a hostile and uncertain regulatory climate in the US as part of the reason that they were seeking to uh, no longer pursue the Voyager assets. Now. You may recall that Voyager assets have been essentially encumbered or frozen since last July. Um, also, you may recall FTX had won the initial auction to acquire the Voyager assets. And subsequently, following the troubles at FTX, that sale fell through back in November of 2022. So it's been a long road for the Voyager investors, um, the account holders. But it seems at this point now, Voyager is going to take steps to directly compensate the people whose assets have been tied up. So uh, they reference something called a toggle option, which I, I believe, I don't know for certain, but I believe may indicate that uh, Voyager is going to be liquidating assets on their own and then paying uh, claim holders from the proceeds of those liquidated assets. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I don't know how, how surprising this is. Um, you know, I, I think obviously we've covered in detail some of the regulatory scrutiny around Binance. And I think particularly with this acquisition, we, we saw, you know, quite a bit of pushback, um, including, you know, some comments um, coming from staff of the, some of the regulatory agencies around this. Now, that's not the official opinion of the, the agency itself, but I think is a pretty good barometer as to kind of how they're thinking about things. And so, you know, it's likely, you know, that Binance kind of reading in between the lines, you know, saw that this was potentially a pretty significant risk acquiring this business. And so, um, you know, and I think this kind of leads to, you know, lends itself to the discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago around just regulatory environment and how that's kind of resulting in shifts of, of activity, um, you know, into different parts of the ecosystem and, and, you know, different jurisdictions. And we saw some some other U.S.-based companies are now discussing potentially moving their operations offshore. So yeah, um, whether or not this withdrawal is specific to the U.S. in Binance dynamic, 
um, put that aside, I don't know. But generally speaking, I think that there continues to be a perception that it is difficult to do business in the U.S. under the current environment. And unless and until we have more regulatory clarity, uh, there will be um, motivation for, for industry to, to look for places that have a little bit more uh, clear rules of the road. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe going back to consensus, um, Jack, did you have a lot of traditional finance uh, representation or more than usual, or did you have a lot of these crypto native companies? Because I, I love walking up to these booths and just hearing about what they are offering. And I know there were a few product launches, but what was the, what was the, the, the audience like? Yeah, no, that's a great question and, and something I, I failed to mention initially. So being in research for, for part of sort of the, the commercial Fidelity digital assets business personally, I, I spent a lot of my time talking with you know potential clients that are interested in you know the custody services that Fidelity Digital Assets offers. And this year compared to last year, I don't know, I, I would almost make an argument that just anecdotally from my sample size, I actually saw more traditional institutions at this conference this year than last year, or at least on a, a similar level playing field. Uh, obviously, consensus leans like crypto native and all of the providers that are sort of sponsors and whatnot are going to be crypto native infrastructure and companies that are both looking to work with each other, but also find potential clients. Um, but there was a number of you know traditional institutions uh, at the conference and allocators. Yeah. I would completely agree with that. Um, I think, and I think because, you know, the numbers were reduced this year, um, it was more noticeable who was there, right? Where last, last year, you know, at least from my opinion, it was fairly overwhelming just there because there were so many people. But I think, you know, a lot of the reduction in the attendees came likely from the crypto side. And I guess that's really not that surprising, right? Because just given it, it's been a very rough year for the industry, you know, everyone's cutting back. We've talked about that pretty, you know, pretty uh, good detail. Um, and so I think, you know, just in terms of sending people to these events, um, you know, I think the crypto, crypto native companies were maybe a little less likely to do so this year, just as sheer cost savings. And so um, I think that that equated to a much larger kind of institutional, you know, proportion of the overall at attendees. If I can stay back on this uh, consensus theme for a minute, I want to ask you, Ryan, you said you saw a lot of new startups. Were there any particular segments of the market that you saw uh, either overrepresented or maybe even underrepresented for those startups? It's a great it's a great question. You know, I think there there were a number of kind of infrastructure as a service providers. So think kind of staking as a service. I think that was, you know, pretty popular. Um, and then, you know, I think outside of that, um, lots of different um, asset management offerings, um, I would say crypto native asset management offerings. Um, but I didn't really, you know, nothing terribly notable. You know, again, I think the most notable piece, as I mentioned earlier, was that they were largely companies that I hadn't heard of, um, which I which is really interesting. Um, but, you know, in terms of like representation, I would say it's kind of your, you know, if you've ever gone to any of these events, I would say it's kind of your standard allocation, if you will, um, across different, you know, subsets of the of the industry. Cool. Thanks. It yeah. seems like the audience was more uh, on two sides, one were the traditional finance players, and then you had these new startups uh, coming in. Yeah, uh, and we saw quite a few uh, announcements from traditional finance players, such as Circle. Uh, I don't know if Circle is a TradFi player, and then I think I mean they're an incumbent at this point. I would say right, and then Mastercard. Maybe we can talk about those. Yeah, yeah. Parth, you wanna? I know you were pretty intrigued by the Circle announcement. Do you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, so I think we've been talking about uh, Circle's announcement on CCTP, which is cross-chain transfer protocol. And that uh, finally went live during consensus, right? So what really it means is that now you can effectively teleport your USDC from one ecosystem to another in the most uh, capital efficient way with almost uh, near zero transaction fee, right? So just maybe to give you some context on why this is important, uh, I think it's important to understand how people bridge assets or how they bridge as how they bridge USDC as of now before the announcement, right? And so typically, what you have to do is you have to use one of these bridges, uh, which we spoke about last year, where a lot of these bridges got hacked. But essentially, you you lock your funds, so you lock your hundred USDC, uh, and then the bridge is going to mint another hundred USDC on the destination chain. But the problem is that when you lock your assets on that bridge, that essentially becomes a honeypot for, for hackers, right? And so we saw a lot of hacks in 2021 and 2022. But now, uh, with this latest announcement, you don't lock and mint, right? So all you do is you say, hey, Circle, here's my $100 worth of USDC, and I want this to go to Polygon. Uh, and on the backend, Circle will burn those 100 USDC on the source chain and authorize the minting of 100 USDC on the destination chain, right? So now we are almost seeing this new classification of bridges called stablecoin bridges, which are great in terms of UX. They're obviously more centralized. And these are native bridges, which are built by the stablecoin issuer themselves. And so just because of that, it is possible to make, it's possible to bridge large volumes of uh, USDC in this scenario at almost a near zero cost. Um, which is, I think, a, a pretty big unlock since you see most uh, transfer volume of stable coins in DeFi. So Parth, I think this announcement was particular uh, was specific to um, Ethereum and Avalanche. Do you know if they have plans to kind of expand um, the protocols that are supported? Yes. So I think they have a plan to uh, mint USDC across all uh, Cosmos app chains as well. I'm curious if this moves beyond just stable coins, um, because obviously the, the core transfer mechanism is that, for instance, if you're going Ethereum to Avalanche, that they would you know, destroy the, the USDC on the Ethereum chain and mint it on the Avalanche chain. But let's take it like a step further. If you're going from Ethereum to AVAX, like, could there be integrations where it just makes it super easy to swap in a uni pool from ETH to USDC, have Circle, you know, automatically destroy the ETH USDC, mint the USDC on AVAX, and then trade on Trader Joe or some liquid exchange to get you into AVAX and make it all, you know, sort of user friendly and, and easy to use? Because then you have like, you know, relatively centralized to some degree, uh, but everything's being done on chain through through Circle or USDC as the conduit. I think I think that's the exact UX we are all aspiring for, or, or these stablecoin bridges are aspiring for. Since Circle was almost the first uh, stablecoin issuer to do that, I can almost I can almost envision this MakerDAO proposal, which is going to do the same for Dai. I think it's important to understand what they're really talking about here is a re-registration or in the TradFi space, we often call it a depot move or depository move. Like you might have shares at Euroclear and you want to settle a trade at DTC. You have to re-register your shares to the or move those to the depository where you want to settle at. It's kind of the same thing here, but I, I do think that you're going to see that across more chains. If my memory serves me right, we, we first looked at cross-chain uh, transfer protocol probably about a year or so ago. It um, they, they were talking about applying it to all the all the chains where USDC is currently accessible, which I believe is um, 
roughly 10 chains. Now it may not be all 10 chains for some time. Um, I'm sure each one of them requires a different uh, type of integration. But the important thing here is that you still have a centralized actor who is looking at the registration. They're verifying that you have the access and the ability to control those tokens. And as you move them from chain A to chain B, they're still recording that. So um, it is, is very much a centralized re-registration of, of the tokens. Absolutely. And I think maybe speaking about stablecoin uh, transfers, I think there was a big announcement about, uh, by MasterCard as well. Uh, yeah. which is more geared towards crypto adoption. Um, so I think we all know that one of the biggest reasons uh, of not having mass adoption has been due to trust issues with banks. And so MasterCard is launching a product called uh, Crypto Credential, where it essentially wants to define uh, user verification standards, right? And also support compliance for uh, cross-border transactions. Yeah. And so I think the, the biggest win is that it's going to make easier uh, for people to spend their crypto in the real world. Yeah. And I, I, I think like based on the announcement, it seems that this is geared really towards maybe non like crypto native transactions. Like it's, we're really probably talking more like stable coins, NFTs, you know, other tokenized assets. It kind of felt like it's authentication for those quote unquote enterprise level use cases. Um, but that's still really powerful, right? Like to your point, Parth, like cross-border payments, I think is one of the kind of early targeted uses for this. This is clearly a need. In our earliest days of research, we were talking about how you do authentication kind of in a decentralized way. And MasterCard themselves, you know, have been very aggressive, you know, in terms of their, you know, growth in this space. But they've also got pretty impressive consortia of crypto native companies at the table with them coming up with the standards. And so presumably you'll see pretty high degree of interoperability across multiple protocols, which will mean adoption of this standard more broadly. It's a really interesting announcement from them. Yeah, so I went out to their website to try and learn a little bit more. And what they say is the first use case test of the solution will focus on enabling transfers between the U.S. and Latin American and Caribbean corridors. So a lot of payment remittances go back and forth between those uh, channels. But they also talked about the fact that they're tapping into Cypertrace um, in order to ensure that the transfers are travel rule compliant. So I think that's a really important aspect of this. They are a, a large money transfer business. And they want to make sure that anything that they do is going to be regulatory compliant. So it seems to me that um, they're looking for uh, call it dynamics or, or relationships where there's already high volume and looking to try and bring more efficient processing into those. So, right, Ryan, it could be related to stable coins, could be related to NFTs, other types of value. But um, it, what I believe is that they're going to be working on a number of, of public blockchains here. So uh, not just limited to one. Jason, you mentioned foreign remittance being a big part of some of these initiatives. And I think everyone looking at crypto, one of the first things that you see with like Bitcoin is just, hey, why are we using some of these providers that are still charging you know, really what seems to be excessive fees? I mean, there may be high administrative costs to be able to do those things, but now you have these open source networks where all you need to do is plug into the internet. It seems like a no brainer to, to many of us, but with like a, a MasterCard and some of those places that already have the pipes put in place, integrating digital assets, like the marginal costs uh, and the competitive environment uh, for cross-border payments will probably continue to tick up. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important to look at what they're doing here. They're, they're basically authenticating 
wallet addresses. So you have to, if you want to participate, you have to essentially um, self-authenticate and provide the required documentation or, or sign a transaction that proves you have control over that wallet. So um, it's it's definitely a step towards bridging TradFi and DeFi. Yeah, I think maybe from my perspective, I think the biggest win is for businesses that wish to enable crypto transactions, right? So I know two business owners uh, who want crypto to be enabled for their services, but now using this, they can actually verify the identities of the people who are sending them money, right? And they know that these transactions are uh, are originating from uh, legitimate folks. Uh, so I think crypto be- businesses would benefit a lot. Yeah. But- with a household name as well, right? They probably already have relationships there versus, you know, there are some crypto providers uh, that When you think about merchant, space, integra- but... merchant integration, I mean, they're arguably the best position to do this. Yeah, you. that's where all the scale is, right? right? So you build the crypto relationships in there and you hit the vast majority of merchants with yeah. just a few companies integrating. Yeah. I was reading this story and I was thinking back to some of Fidelity's earliest experimentation with Bitcoin. And, you know, we had set up the arrangement where you could, purchase your food at one of our cafeterias using Bitcoin and just the duration of the transaction and how it could impair the lines and yeah. slow things down a bit. I wonder how that will work here. Your lunch was cold by the time you uh, actually got to go sit down. And- uh, you had to come back the next day at lunch to make sure that the transaction <laughs> went through. <laughs> we, we all have a friend who talks about having uh, to wait in line 10 minutes to buy a banana because the transaction hadn't been confirmed. <laughs> Before we end the podcast, maybe one last question for Ryan and Jack, because you were at Consensus. What was something which was most interesting in in the three days or two days? Were, were people paying for food using crypto? Did something really uh, interesting happen? It's a good question. Uh, people were not paying for food in crypto, as, as far as I could tell. Not at, not, not at the event itself, at least. I, I guess something that was interesting is, is, and I think they had this last year, but it definitely was built out further this year, is they have kind of the, their native token for the event. Mm. Um, and, and it kind of, there was like the gamification of the event where if you checked in and you did certain things, you got more tokens in which you could, rewar- you could uh, redeem for, you know, experiences or swag or you know yeah there was like a whole catalog of things so i I mean i think that's it's an interesting way of getting people to engage with the event more rather than kind of coming listening and and leaving you know again it was a pretty mellow mood this year right so there wasn't a lot of showmanship there were no lamborghinis as far as i could tell right so like i think that 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 should kind of tell you what the what the tone was um but the gamification piece i think is interesting just given the kind of its web3 focus you you see the lambos in bitcoin miami i mean there was like you know a rolls royce parked outside one hotel and there was some showmanship but far less than i think uh, you would you would you've had previous years i saw a dogecoin covered uh i think it was a lambo so okay. there was a, a few exceptions to the rule. Still a little bit of a speculative fervor out there in the pockets. Photo op, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Photo op. But uh, hopefully you guys weren't melting in 108 degree temperatures. No, it was it was cold this year, which is that was a you know I don't know if that's I guess it is kind of a pretty good symbolism. Last year we were we were melting, and this year we were actually shivering out on the street at night. So I should tell you something: we are actually in a winter. <laughs> so. All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for the discussion. Glad to be back. And um, yeah, we'll see you all next week. And for everyone else, have a good rest of your week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT.
FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.